This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to this Rand Congressional Briefing. Today's briefing is being video recorded. Uh, video will be available online at www.rand.org. Or you can listen to today's discussion by subscribing to RAND's Congressional Briefing Series podcast on iTunes. Uh, I'm Wynn Burkle, and I head up RAND's, uh, RAND Corporation's Office of Congressional Relations here in Washington, D.C. Let me tell you briefly about RAND. Uh, the RAND Corporation is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Uh, RAND focuses on the issues that matter most, such as health, education, national security, international affairs law, business, energy, environment, and more. Uh, as a nonpartisan organization, RAND operates independent of both political and commercial pressures. We serve the public interest by helping lawmakers reach informed decisions on the nation's pressing challenges. RAND also disseminates its findings and recommendations as widely as possible. The idea is to benefit the public good. More than 10,000 RAND reports and commentary are available for free online, again, at www.rand.org. Um, as you and the audience know better than I, Congress has been struggling to reform and reauthorize the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, uh, better known as No Child Left Behind, or NCLB. With difficult decisions ahead for members of Congress, it's still not clear what form the final reauthorization is going to take. With that in mind, today you'll hear from a distinguished panel of RAND education experts who will discuss the ways that federal policy, and specifically a reauthorized ESEA, can encourage innovation while maintaining accountability. Uh, but before we begin, just let me take a moment to tell you briefly about our three panelists and our discussion leader. Um, uh, Laura Hamilton, who's sitting in the middle, is a senior behavioral scientist at the RAND Corporation. Her research focuses on educational assessment, accountability, instructional practices, and school reform. She has directed several large studies, including an investigation of the implementation of standards-based accountability in response to the No Child Left Behind an investigation of relationships between student achievement and teachers' instructional practices in math and science, and an evaluation of a leadership development program for principals in urban school districts. She has also worked with the National Center on Performance Incentives to investigate teachers' responses to pay for performance programs and is evaluating a new principal evaluation system in the Pittsburgh public schools. Uh, next, at the very end, Susan Gates. Susan M. Gates is a senior economist specializing in the economics of organizations, political economy, and applications of economic management principles to public sector organizations, with a special interest in leadership and entrepreneurship. She serves as director of the Kaufman Rand Institute for Entrepreneurship Public Policy. Her current projects include an evaluation of the New Leaders for New Schools National Principal Training Program and a study of the Wallace Foundation Program on the Principalship Pipeline. Jennifer Steele, who sits uh, second in here. Jennifer Steele is a policy researcher at the RAND Corporation, where she studies teacher quality, school reform, and database decision-making in schools. Steele's currently studying changes in the distribution of effective teachers for the Gates Foundation's intensive partnership sites evaluation, as well as an examination of how states and districts are incorporating student performance into teacher evaluation systems, and an examination of the impact of financial incentives on the distribution of academically talented teachers in California. She also recently co-led a U.S. Department of Education-funded study of the policies of charter and traditional schools in a post-Katrina New Orleans. Uh, 
Leading the discussion today, to my immediate right, uh, today will be Darlene Opfer. Darlene is the director of RAND Education and holds the Distinguished Chaired Education Policy at the RAND Corporation. Before joining RAND last year, Opfer served on the Faculty of Education at University of Cambridge in England, where she was director of and research and senior lecturer in research methods and school improvement. Prior to her work in Cambridge, she served as director of the Ohio Collaborative, a policy research center at Ohio State University where she was also an associate professor of research methods. Darlene was also an assistant professor at Georgia State University and research director for the Virginia Institute of Government at the University of Virginia. She's conducted policy research studies for a number of governments, including on the recruitment and retention of school teachers for the Scottish government and on teacher professional development for the training and development agency for schools in England. Darlene holds a BA in education from Stetson University, an MED in behavior disorders, and a PhD in education policy studies, both from the University of Virginia. With that, now that you know who everybody is, let me turn it over to Darlene to kick off the discussion. Thank Darlene. you, Wynn. Um, good afternoon, and, and thank you for joining us for a conversation and talk about what the research and some of the research implications are for the reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. Um, currently, the, the, the world of education research doesn't always provide easy answers for what Congress should do in the reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, better known as No Child Left Behind. However, um, we think that when you look at um, now more than a decade of research and you look across that research, that what we see are some do's and don'ts and particularly some directions that emerge and those are the things that we're going to focus on in our talk today. Um, our presentation and the presentation, the talks that um, we'll give on the research really reflects our reading of research that we've done at RAND, but also work that's been done outside of RAND. So we're looking um, outside of RAND as well. And we're looking at work that's been done on the impact of No Child Left Behind, high stakes testing, school accountability, and school reform specifically. And RAND has been uh, well positioned within these fields. Uh, we've done a number of studies, including studies of states, districts, and, res and school responses to, to accountability. We've been looking at teacher and principal evaluation and evaluation systems. Um, we've also been looking at evaluating programs for principal and teacher development, performance-based accountability systems, um, incentives for teachers, and as uh, Wynn mentioned, we also were part of the, the team that looked at and conducted the National Longitudinal Study of No Child Left Behind. So we have a lot of work that we're drawing on today for which these patterns and themes emerge. Um, in looking collectively at the work, though, we think that federal policy, and specifically ESEA, can really encourage innovation um, in the states while at the same time maintaining accountability. And this will be a consistent theme across all the talks. Um, as Wynn mentioned in his introduction, I have three colleagues with me today, and each of them have played a significant role in developing RAND's work in these areas. In looking at the patterns and the research that we see, today we're going to make three recommendations for reauthorized ESEA. Uh, the first recommendation is that we think that ESEA should retain the principle of assessing students' learning on state content standards, but it should also encourage states to ensure that these standards actually promote college and career readiness. 
Uh, related to that, we think that ESEA needs to encourage the development of high-quality curricula and professional development for teaching of those standards and to teach them effectively. The second recommendation is that we think a reauthorized ESEA should retain the core principle of making district and school performance public and transparent, but at the same time needs to take steps to mitigate some of the negative, unanticipated consequences we've seen. And the third recommendation is that a reauthorized DSCA should focus on building a structure for school improvement that encourages both states and districts to develop the capacity they need to support uh, schools in assisting children, particularly those in the most struggling schools, in effective ways given their local context. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Jennifer Steele, who will talk to us about the research on standards. So as Darlene mentioned, our first recommendation is that a reauthorized elementary and, and secondary education act should retain the principle of assessing students' learning of state content standards, but should also encourage states to improve their standards to promote college and career readiness. In addition, it should encourage the development of high-quality curricula and professional development to reflect those higher standards. So to place this recommendation in context, I'm going to talk a little bit about where we've been and how we got where we are with, with federal education policy. And this will be review for a lot of you, so I'll try to hit it quickly. Uh, as you know, the current iteration of ESEA, No Child Left Behind, Grew, um, with regard to standards, grew out of the standards-based movement of the 1990s. This was an effort that laudably aimed for clarity in terms of what students should know and be able to do at each grade level. No Child Left Behind importantly recognized um, the centrality and importance of local control by requiring that each state establish its own set of content standards and its own definition of proficiency on those standards. States just had to get all students to reach proficiency by 2014. Now, as was predicted, this turned out to be no small feat. Um, and of course, we're not there yet. Um, no Child Left Behind, um, states' responses to No Child Left Behind, given this stringent requirement of 100% proficiency by 2014, actually varied quite a bit. Um, in, the, in terms of the content standards they prescribed and the level of knowledge that they deemed proficient. So this variation among states actually spans a range of about 60 to 80 points on the National Assessment of Educational Progress, and that's as much as about six grade levels um, at least. So tremendous variation among states is where we are. Uh, the result is that a state a child lives in dictates both the content he's expected to learn and the proportion of the content he's expected to master. This renders the term proficiency in terms of state standards somewhat meaningless when we're trying to do cross-state comparisons. So a quick example is that eighth grade math proficiency in 2005, the proficiency rate on state standards in North Carolina was 88%. Right next door in South Carolina, proficiency rate was 30%. And yet these two states had almost the same proficiency rates on, or the same uh, percent basic rates and proficiency rates on the National Assessment of Educational Progress. So this tells you tremendous variation in the difficulty of the state assessments. Um, so having nearly 50 different sets of academic standards creates challenges. One challenge is the inefficiency of each state's having to build or buy math and reading and science assessments aligned with its standards in each grade. A lot of redundancy. 
Um, another challenge is that textbook manufacturers have attempted to be inclusive to increase their market share. So because grade level standards vary from state to state, the textbooks try to encompass all of them, all of the standards at each grade level for all of the states they want to target, which, which exacerbates the tendency for U.S. textbooks to go, as has been stated, a mile wide and an inch deep. You get a lot of coverage every year, but there's a lot of redundancy. You're learning the same thing over and over every year. So enter the Common Core. Uh, state's recent collective effort um, response to these limitations has been the Common Core State Standards Initiative, which is currently embraced by 46 states in the District of Columbia. As you most likely know, the Common Core provides a set of math and language arts standards that are intended to strengthen the rigor, uh, strengthen rigor and promote college and career readiness. Of course, a state's adoption of the Common Core is strictly voluntary. This is a state-led effort co coordinated by the National Gover Governors Association and the Council of Chief State Schools, School Officers. It is not a federally driven effort, nor should it become one. Having said that, the fact that 46 states have adopted the Common Core carries some benefits for the nation of which the federal government may wish to take advantage. Namely, it streamlines the process of creating assessments that are comparable among states. This is efficient from a resource investment standpoint, and it allows for better cross-state comparisons when we try to do evaluations of state-level school reforms um, in, or of reforms that are occurring at the district or school level in different states. And you're going to hear about some of those from my colleagues in just a moment. So once you have comparable assessments in place, it should also be easier in theory for schools to serve the needs of students that are migrating from state to state, moving from state to state, such as we often see, for example, with the uh, children of military families. Um, to help states realize the potential of the Common Core, the federal government has already invested in providing incentives to two consortia for developing assessments aligned with the Common Core. This kind of support of, for assessment development is very important. But fulfilling the promise of better standards requires more than just good assessments. It depends on the development of quality curricula that can be used to teach the standards. In other words, standards aren't enough. You have to teach them well. You have to have books or materials that enable you to do so. Um, a lot of existing curricula are already marketing themselves as Common Core aligned, but the extent to which they adequately reflect the content and emphasis of these standards remains to be seen. So the federal role here may be to help provide clarity about the relative effectiveness of different curricula or even alignment of different curricula as it has done so far with regard to effectiveness through development of the What Works Clearinghouse. So that is one way in which the federal uh, role has, the federal government has already been providing clarity for, for local uh, purchasers of curriculum materials. In addition, the, the effective teaching of improved standards depends on teachers' ability to modify their practice accordingly, to teach the new standards. So one recent study at Michigan State University found that in states whose curriculum standards are not closely aligned with the Common Core, many key mathematics concepts are going to be need to be taught in earlier grades. So this is going to require a lot of math teachers to retool and perhaps even learn new content as well as how to teach it. 
humanities teachers are also going to have to adapt since the Common Core places greater emphasis on informational text and close reading of texts than has previously been the case. So to support all states in promoting college and career readiness, a reauthorized ESEA should encourage efforts to promote teacher readiness. Such efforts could include competitive incentives for developing online curriculum banks or online videos of exemplary teaching practice that teachers could refer to from uh, throughout the country. It could also include making the Title IIA professional development funds that are already available um, focused on or targeted toward states and districts seeking to familiarize teachers with updated standards, be they Common Core aligned or not, but uh, the state's updated standards. The takeaway message here is that the state-led state movement toward more rigorous and consistent standards presents an important opportunity for the nation, but it's not a panacea. Improved standards must be enacted in a way that actually improves students' learning in the classroom. A reauthorized ESEA can streamline progress by supporting quality curriculum development and skilled instructional implementation. So now I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Laura Hamilton, who's going to discuss measures of school and district performance. Thanks. Um, so as Darlene mentioned, the second broad recommendation that we have is that the, a reauthorized ESEA should retain the core principle that we've seen in past accountability systems of making both district and school performance publicly available, but also needs to take steps to mitigate some of the unanticipated negative consequences that we've seen um, coming out of prior accountability systems. So Rand and others have done a lot of work looking not only at No Child Left Behind, but at state enacted accountability systems that were in place prior to No Child Left Behind, um, as well as systems in other sectors uh, that, that focus on performance-based accountability. And the common finding um, is that uh, any kind of reporting influences behavior in a way that um, encourages people to focus on what's measured um, and to neglect what isn't measured. Um, and this is the case even when there aren't explicit rewards or sanctions attached, but even when it's just a matter of publicizing the scores uh, through report cards or websites or that kind of thing. Some of the consequences of that, um, under No Child Left Behind in particular, have been beneficial. One example is the focus on subgroups. Uh, which our research suggests that um, that has led to an increased emphasis um, among teachers and principals on meeting the needs of groups who in the past, um, you know, whose needs might have been neglected to some degree. At the same time, there have been a lot of uh, what would probably be considered uh, negative consequences of this. Um, and I'll summarize a few of those. First of all, um, under No Child Left Behind, the, the accountability emphasis was really on um, the proportion of students who performed above the proficient level. So as Jennifer was mentioning, each state had to set a cut score that, it was, that was called proficient. Um, and that's what you were held accountable for, was moving kids above that threshold. As a result of that, um, we saw a lot of focus on what educators often call the bubble kids. Those are the students who are performing not quite at that proficient level, but who are close. Um, and if you think about how to maximize uh, your performance under a system that gives you credit for the percentage of kids who are above a cut score, the easiest and most efficient way to do that is to focus on the students who are just below that and try to move that, as many of them up as you possibly can. And we, in fact, did see that um, in a lot of the schools and districts where we did research. Um, and as a result, you have students who are far below the threshold or who, those who are more advanced and performing above, above it um, whose needs could be neglected in that kind of a system. 
Second, we see that educators focus on both the tested subjects as well as the tested content within, the, within those tested subjects. So we've all heard a lot about how social studies and art um, you know, may be getting less attention as a result of No Child Left Behind. What I think we don't hear as much about is what happens within those subjects of mathematics and reading. Um, so in English classes, for example, we see a reduced focus on activities like having kids read novels um, and more emphasis on reading short passages and trying to identify the main ideas. So if you all think back to all the standardized tests you took, um, you know, lots of short passages with multiple choice questions and, um, you know, what does this word mean or what's the main idea of this passage? And so we see a lot of those things going on in classrooms at the expense of, of many of the other activities that we think um, educators should be engaging in. Um, and this is especially of concern because when we look at uh, studies that focus on the alignment between state standards and state tests, we see that the more complex standards, the ones that focus on reasoning and problem solving, tend not to be included in the tests. Um, and that's mainly because states, because of budget constraints, rely heavily on the multiple choice format where it's harder to measure some of those more sophisticated skills. Um, and, and so there's an incentive really for, for teachers to focus less on those, those um, more complex skills and more on the basic facts and both vocabulary and that sort of thing. The third finding which relates to that is, is um, a phenomenon called score inflation, which refers to a situation in which scores on a high stakes test increase um, while performance on the underlying achievement area that you're really trying to measure um, essentially stays flat. And that stems from teachers' efforts to focus on particular item formats or um, kinds of questions, ways of asking about a particular topic that don't generalize to a broader um, sort of achievement domain. That often plays out when we look at uh, gains in state accountability tests and compare those to gains on the National Assessment of Educational Progress. And so you'll often see state test scores um, increasing at a fairly rapid rate while the NAEP scores are staying flat or maybe increasing at a very slow, slow rate. Um, and that really makes the high stakes tests um, somewhat useless for trying to measure the extent of learning that has occurred. Um, fourth, uh, uh, the accountability systems that were enacted under No Child Left Behind really emphasized status rather than growth. It was mostly about how many of your kids are proficient this year um, rather than where did those students start and where did they, how much movement did they make over the past year. Um, and that has two negative effects. One is that it, it has a negative effect on teacher morale in places where kids are coming in at a very low level. Um, teachers are working very hard and may actually be making some progress with those kids, but the kids aren't yet proficient um, and the teachers don't get any credit for those gains. Um, second, um, it, re it reduces the amount of information that's available. And so if, you, if all you know about a school is that 85% of its students are proficient, that doesn't tell you whether the teaching in that school is actually effective or whether those students are just coming in with a lot of advantages and that's reflected in the test scores. And then finally, the specific adequate yearly progress targets under No Child Left Behind have led to all sorts of gaming. Um, one example of that is um, each state had to set a minimum um, subgroup uh, uh, number so that if, you know, for example, if you had 30 students in this particular subgroup, you needed to report and be held accountable for those kids' performance. But if you had 29 of those students, you didn't have to report that. So each state had to set those minimum numbers. And was, as a result of that, you saw schools, do, districts doing things like moving kids from one school to another so that all those schools stayed under the, the minimum level, which reduced the likelihood of, of not meeting their AYP targets. 
Um, you know, and, and this has all sorts of negative effects on efforts to desegregate schools and, and um, you know, we want to set, we want to create a metric that doesn't create those kinds of incentives. Um, so that's what the research shows us. Um, thinking ahead, um, there have been lots of recent advances in the availability of data uh, for reporting, analysis systems, um, web-based uh, models for disseminating information about schools. Um, there's also been growing expectations on the part of consumers like parents who really want this information are becoming more savvy about seeking it out. Um, so it's a good time to be thinking about how do you design a reporting system that um, will serve the needs of the various stakeholders and not create these negative incentives. Um, one general guideline is that the performance information that's reported um, should be reported in a way that's easily understood by members of the public as well as by those who are um, responsible for making decisions about schools with appropriate guidance um, that would caution users against uh, inappropriate um, interpretations of what the data mean. Um, it's also important to try to, where possible, provide multiple metrics based on the test score. So for example, um, it's useful to be able to see both status measures and growth measures. That is, how's the school doing right now um, in terms of, of test scores, um, but also how much gain did it make over the past year or over the past three years, um, so that we can see whether there's actually progress being made. Um, and when you measure that growth, um, ideally that should be based on longitudinally linked student level data so that you're actually looking at how much gains did individual students make, not just comparing one cohort of kids to the, the kids who passed through in the prior year. Um, it's also beneficial, if possible, to try to report on subjects other than mathematics and reading for some of the reasons that I mentioned earlier. Um, and, and you know, perhaps most of all, we think it's important not to just report on a percent proficient metric or on a gain in percent proficient metric. Um, we would like to see information at all points in the, in the score scale. So what's happening with those advanced and gifted kids? Are they making progress? What's happening with the kids who start out three or four grade levels below where they should be? Are we seeing them make progress at a rate that, um, that they need to in order to eventually catch up? That could be done through setting multiple cut scores. It could be done through um, presenting some sort of continuous scale score. There are various ways to do that. Um, but that's important both for incentive purposes so that educators uh, are looking at kids along the full distribution and not focusing on those bubble kids, but it's also important for information dissemination for parents, uh, other members of the public, as well as uh, teachers and educational administrators. Um, a third general guideline is that um, the test score data should be based on high quality assessments that capture the full range of what's in the standards. Um, and that sounds kind of obvious, but in past accountability systems, we've seen that that's not been the case. Um, you know, some of the things that are in the standards, and as Jennifer mentioned, um, those standards have, the common core standards have really ramped up in terms of expectations. Those things are hard to measure with paper and pencil multiple choice tests. Um, there have been some advances in, in technology that could facilitate the development of better tests. Um, lots of advances in automated essay grading, for instance, which could um, really reduce the cost of administering essay type open-ended items. Um, there are some very cool science simulations that people are developing um, that could help us look at you know, the extent to which students are, are demonstrating uh, inquiry skills, um, some of those more sophisticated science problem-solving skills. And one of the most important 
features of, of uh, accountability tests needs to be a lack of predictability. So the thing that's really facilitated some of these narrowing effects um, and that's contributed to score inflation is predictability from one year to the next. Um, educators get very good at you know, predicting what's going to be on the test, how are questions going to be asked. Um, and if you can create a test that has less of that predictability built in, you can really reduce the likelihood of, of score inflation. And then finally, there's an important um, benefit to including non-test measures in any type of reporting system. So in addition to just reporting on achievement, um, you know, we recommend thinking more broadly about what might be reported. That can include um, rates of enrollment in college preparatory or AP kinds of courses at the high school level, could include graduation rates, um, could include the availability of special services at the school, so that you're actually giving a very broad picture of what the school's doing and not just focusing on test scores. Um, and of, of particular value, we think, is um, information about post-secondary attainment. So as a result of the state longitudinal data system grants that a lot of states have gotten um, and other advances, we now have a growing availability of K-16 data systems, that is, systems that link the K-12 through public education system with the higher education system. So you, you can now think about building things into the accountability system like college-going rates, um, or college remediation rates, how many of your kids are having to retake basic math after they graduate from your high school. Um, so that would be uh, something that sh could be built into an accountability system that would really um, provide more useful information about the, to what extent are schools meeting their goals of providing college and career ready kids. Um, and then to wrap up, you know, I just want to reiterate that there's not a lot of research on what kinds of systems will actually be effective. We know a lot about what's been ineffective. Um, but we haven't tested out some of these broader kinds of systems. And so, you know, we think there's some benefit to encouraging states and districts to innovate around these sort of broad principles, um, but without being very restrictive. Um, and, th and then taking, uh, you know, a very close look, undertaking some systematic evaluations of how they're working um, so that we can figure out which states have, have gotten it right, um, which ones might need to make some adjustments, um, and then disseminate those best practices more broadly. So I will turn it over to Susan now. Well, ultimately, a key objective of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act is to promote improvement in the quality of education for all students. The issues that my colleagues raised, transparent reporting of data and a standards-based curricular framework, can provide an important impetus for actions on the part of schools, districts, and states to promote such improvement. But we all know that these things do not guarantee such action. And for this reason, our third recommendation is that a reauthorization of ESEA focus on building accountability and capacity for improvement at all levels of the system, the classroom, the school, the district, and the state. So how might this happen? Well, let's begin in the classroom. We know that teacher quality, we know from research that teacher quality is the factor over which school systems have at least some control that is most strongly related to improvements in student achievement. No Child Left Behind addressed the issue of teacher quality through the highly qualified teacher metric, which was primarily based on certification requirements. But in the last decade, federal efforts have gone well beyond that mainly because research evidence showed that those licensure-based metrics of teacher quality were not, in fact, good indicators of teacher quality. Um, one such effort has been a focus on pay for performance. 
The Teacher Incentive Fund, as well as Race to the Top, have encouraged states and districts to introduce pay-for-performance initiatives under which individuals or schools receive financial bonuses based on student outcome metrics. Unfortunately, research and evaluation of pay-for-performance uh, efforts at the teacher, school, and principal level provide absolutely no evidence that these efforts in and of themselves have any effect on student outcomes. Now this failure may be explained by poor implementation of these efforts. However, there are many reasons to question the underlying logic tying pay for performance to potential improvements in student achievement. The logic hinges on assumptions that teachers and administrators aren't working hard enough, that money will motivate them to work harder, and that additional effort will lead to better outcomes. Not surprisingly, this train of logic has resulted in substantial resistance. An alternative view is that educators are working hard, but they lack information about what they need to do to improve. And that's where efforts to enhance the quality of teacher evaluation tools come in. Um, we recommend that the federal government shift the focus of efforts to improve teacher quality away from standalone pay-for-performance systems and instead focus additional encouragement and support for comprehensive efforts to improve teacher evaluation. Now, this is no small task. It's widely acknowledged that performance evaluation systems used today in K-12 education are woefully inadequate. Um, effective systems for teacher evaluation provide teachers with actionable information that they can use to improve. But research reveals that such teacher evaluation systems are incredibly difficult to develop and to sustain. Importantly, their effectiveness hinges on whether the people who are responsible for doing the evaluations, most typically principals and assistant principals, are themselves doing a good job. The federal government has an important role to play here by supporting states and districts in developing systems that can support high quality evaluation of administrators as well as teachers, aligning these systems with one another with a focus on instructional improvement. In the Pittsburgh public schools, we've seen such aligned performance evaluation systems developed, and they are yield, beginning to yield positive results. In advancing and encouraging work in this area, the federal government should not be overly prescriptive about the details of the evaluation metrics. We don't know a lot about what works. Instead, the federal government can focus on assessing the strengths and weaknesses of systems that states and districts um, develop, and also in disseminating best practices and supporting additional states and districts in adopting these efforts. Moving beyond the classroom and the school level, there's much work to be done in a reauthorization of ESEA to enhance the structure for school improvement. We're all familiar with, with the fact that No Child Left Behind includes specific criteria for identifying schools in need of targeted improvement efforts based on their failure to make adequate yearly progress. The law required districts to take actions to support and eventually sanction schools that did not improve. 
The responsibility for providing support and sanctions on schools has fallen largely on districts. But many districts lack the capacity and at times the political will to make the changes needed to achieve real school improvement. And the law imposes limited consequences on districts that, uh, that do not achieve the same. What this means is that no child is left behind so long as they reside in a district that has the capacity and the will to make the needed changes in response to what's going on at the school level. Part of the problem is that the AYP metric used under No Child Left Behind casts an extremely broad net in identifying schools as failing. In the current fiscal environment, many districts are incapable of addressing the challenges at each of these schools. As a result, many schools enter program improvement status and never leave. For example, in the 2011-2012 school year in my home state of California, there were 3,892 schools in program improvement status. That's 63% of all Title I schools in the state. Of those, 1,204 had been in program improvement status for at least six years. In that year, only 85 left program improvement status. A reauthorized ESEA should focus on building a structure for school improvement that encourages states and districts to assist children in the most struggling schools in the most effective way, given the local context. In what ways could this look different from current law? First, it could allow the net to be cast by states rather than by the federal government. Now, this is an area where balancing autonomy and accountability is really tricky. Frankly, it's tough politically to call out low performance, particularly when it is concentrated in some way. States should be required to identify schools that are in greatest need of intervention due to overall low performance or, or achievement gap issues. The methods for identifying those schools should be fair, objective, and transparent. The federal government could set up some basic guidelines, but should allow states some flexibility. Eventually, the number and, and or percentage of schools to be identified could be tied to state performance on common assessment metrics. Secondly, it would re-envision the role of states in holding districts as well as schools accountable for performance. Although No Child Left Behind does place districts as well as schools in performance improvement status, the sanctions, as well as the efforts on the part of states to support districts, have been very limited. Recent research highlights the lack of capacity within states to undertake these efforts. The role of states in school and district reform is an area where the knowledge base of what works is very thin. The federal government could consider providing support for innovations in this area and evaluate efforts that are undertaken. It could also make resources available to help states build this capacity. For example, states might benefit from forming consortia to support districts that are struggling. The bottom line is that we have a lot to learn here. Since the passage of No Child Left Behind, there has been a major shift in our thinking about holding teachers and schools accountable for outcomes. What was almost unheard of over a decade ago is now commonplace. In the next round, we need to emphasize accountability at all levels. 
We need to work on what those accountability systems would look like and figure out how to support the development of capacity at the state and district level to execute those responsibilities, especially in this time of fiscal crisis. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.